Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we're going to take you on a painful human rights journey through one of the great atrocities in the world today in China against the Uyghur Muslim population. It is been called a genocide by our State Department, Mike Pompeo, by other countries, by many, many genocide experts of all different colors and stripes. And today... We're going to bring on two men who played an essential role in a brand new report that was put out in the last uh, week or so that really shows how the genocide statute, the genocide standards, applies to what China is doing to the Uyghur through forced sterilization of the Uyghur women, through concentration camps, through torture, through uh, many, many hideous and awful practices that we should all condemn, all political stripes should condemn. Yona Diamond is the legal counsel at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. He was, they were joint uh, partners with Newsline Institute to create this incredible report about the Uyghurs and how the genocide standards, how the Geneva Convention applies to what China is doing. He'll be joining us along with John Packer, professor at law at the University of Ottawa in Canada. These two men worked on this report for a long time. They solicited about four dozen experts to take all of the available evidence, the facts, imagine that, facts, and and describe to the American public, to the world community, why China's conduct with the Uyghurs amounts to human rights abuse, amounts to genocide. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. Forewarning, this is not easy stuff to talk about. We're talking about forced rape, about forced sterilization, about torture, about concentration camps in China. Uh, This is not uh, for the weak of heart, but it is for those who care about humanity. This is such an important issue. I've been working this issue for a couple of years now, uh, and the evidence is real. As a journalist, what China is doing is irrefutable. And the only question is, will the world, will all these countries... United States, the African countries, the European and Asian countries who get so much money from China, have so much business at stake with China, will they stand up and do the right thing? What does that mean? We're going to ask Professor Packer, John Packer, and Yona Diamond, we're going to ask them both, what are the options? What are the levers to stop this a terrible atrocity occurring on Chinese soil, the horrific genocide of 
the Uyghur Muslim population in China. Important story today. Now, before we do that, I told you yesterday, we might have a scoop or two this morning, and I think we delivered. If you go to justthenews.com, we have a new story about Interior Secretary Deb Holland. Yes, she's now the Interior Secretary. She was confirmed. She's now the first Native American Cabinet Secretary in American history. That's worth celebrating, right? That's No one's against that. But the real issues that my reporting has turned up about Deb Holland is an extraordinary sloppiness, a, a complete disregard for accuracy in the required government documents that members of Congress and Cabinet Secretary nominees must file to create transparency about their finances, about their work history, to police for pol uh, political conflicts of interest before they get such an important job like running the Interior Department, where there's billions of dollars of oil and gas lease, uh, a half billion acres of public lands, all under the control of this Cabinet Secretary, now Deb Holland. So what did we learn yesterday? What did the Just the News turn up? Well we discovered that her official work history that she gave the Senate uh, in as part of her confirmation process, this is a required questionnaire. You're supposed to tell the truth on it. It is the vehicle by which senators make sure there aren't conflicts of interest, there aren't things that we should know about before someone gets the keys to such an important government agency. Well, it turns out that Congresswoman Holland left off two jobs in the last 10 years that she had from that work history. Uh, uh, we think that that is a pretty significant deal, right? So one of those jobs, one of them is that she served on the Laguna Development Corp board. That is the development and gambling uh, company that is part of her tribe, the Laguna Pueblo. She served on the board. We confirmed this with the tribe. We confirmed this from earlier documents she filed in other government matters that Deb Holland served on the Laguna Development Corp board from 2010 to 2015. She declared on one government document, a 2014 disclosure statement to the state of New Mexico, that she earned more than $5,000 a year from that job. And therefore, she should have told the United States Senate about it. She did not. What's the other job? She shows more than $40,000 of income on other government forms that she filed in earlier years uh, for work for a casino related to the Pueblo uh, in, um, in uh, New Mexico. And uh, that doesn't show up in her work history either. That is pretty significant uh, omissions. And uh, Republicans didn't jump on it. They let this nomination go through. They didn't ask for more explanation. Uh, but the reason that, you know, this isn't just a gotcha game. It isn't just to embarrass a nominee. These forms and this vetting process is designed to root out conflicts of interest, to make sure there are no things in someone's background that need to be examined that may be disqualifying. When, when a candidate, a nominee, doesn't provide the full information, it deprives the Senate and the American people from being able to make a rational, informed choice about the nomination. Deb Holland has had significant problems in getting her story straight during the Senate confirmation process. Let's remind people what we, what we broke on just the news in the last few weeks. First off, the Interior Secretary nominee, now the Interior Secretary, uh, gave four, not one, not two, not three, but four 
different accounts of how much money she made in 2018, the last year that she was in the private sector before she joined Congress. It's either $2,250 for the year, which by the way is like one fifth the poverty level in America, raises the question, how did she run for Congress if she only made $2,000 to live on for the year? Or it's uh, $4,000 or it's uh, $30,000 or it's $46,000. She gave four different accounts on four different government forms over a two-year period. We're going to trust her with billions of dollars of accounting at the Interior Department, and she can't even get the American people an honest number, an accurate number, for how much she earned in private money and from where. That's the first thing we learned. The second thing we learned and confirmed factually is that Deb Holland did not file a federal tax return in 2018. But she did so belatedly in last December, 2022 years after it was due, as she was being vetted for the Interior Secretary nominee. If you don't file your taxes on time, then you belatedly do it for whatever reason, whether you're supposed to or not do it, it raises questions about your judgment, your responsibility, your attention to detail, just like those forms that she filled out did. Now we learn that in her work history, she omitted Secretary of Omission, we might call her, um, the uh, dollar or the uh, historical work that she did for two tribal gambling interests, the Laguna Development Corp, the gambling and economic development arm of the Laguna tribe, and then a for a casino for a, uh, that where she worked and collected salary for two years, 2016 and 2017, according to documents we saw, for another band of the Laguna tribe. Um, both of those missing from her official work history. She submitted to the government, submitted to the Senate. You have to ask yourself, if that's going on, why aren't uh, Republican senators putting up more of a fight, more of a request, digging, scratching? Um, I don't know. But listen, these things are not just gotcha games. It's not just a paperwork par parasol. It is important transparency for vetting the nominees that a president makes. If President Trump's nominees left off this information, don't you think there would have been a firestorm? Well, uh, the Republicans failed to fully vet this woman to do their work, to go to the tribe and do the paperwork we've done. And I think that's a, a travesty of oversight. The Democrats weren't going to do it. They were trying to fast track her. But there are legitimate and serious issues here when a candidate omits information fails in, or gives multiple different accounts, conflicting accounts about what she made. It's hard to do oversight. It's hard to do the vetting if you can't get honest and accurate answers from uh, the candidate, the nominee. And that's what happened here. And yet she was approved yesterday by a vote of 51 to 40 as the next interior secretary. And she is now going to run a mammoth federal agency, somebody who couldn't get her math right, even on her own financial disclosure forms. Something to think about. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to that commercial break like we always do. When we come back, Yona Diamond, John Packer, here to talk about a pretty tough subject, the Chinese genocide of the Uyghur Muslim minority population in China. This is heavy stuff, but it's important stuff. If you care about accountability, if you care about humanity and human rights, if you care about the truth, this is an important conversation about an atrocity going on in the world right now uh, at the hands of one of the economic superpowers, China, Beijing, 
And it's one of those things that aren't getting the level of attention they deserve in the American news media. But we're giving it the attention it deserves right here at Just the News, at John Solomon Reports. We're going to be back with the authors of a very important report on human rights abuses and genocide inside China. Right now, let's hear from our great sponsors and advertisers who make this show possible. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special group of guests. I have two guests today, but more importantly, a very powerful issue, one that we cannot turn a blind eye to in America or anywhere in the world, and that is the human rights abuses, the genocide that is going on inside China with the Uyghur minority population. Uh, Last week, we had a story on our site uh, that really caught my attention, a brand new report. I think it was Alex Nixberg that did it for us about a new uh, new report by the New Lines Institute and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights about exactly just how bad the situation is in the Uyghur concentration camps, how much uh, China is violating UN law. And I thought it would be great to bring two people uh, who made that report possible to the show to tell us firsthand what we're learning, why it's important, what we can do next. So let me introduce to you first, Yona Diamond, the legal counsel at the Raul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, one of the co-authors who helped partner with New Lines to make this report possible. Yona, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's an honor to have you. And joining us as well is John Packer, a professor of law at the University of Ottawa in Canada, who also helped uh, develop this really powerful report. Professor Packer, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, this is an amazing issue. I, I, the more I learn about it, the more I am shocked by how little Americans have known about this. And I want to get to maybe some of the reasons for that. But before we get started on, on the deeper discussion, Yona, I wonder if you could just walk us through how this really powerful report came together, how New Lines and the Wallenberg Center worked together to make this happen. Sure. So for the first time, over 50 experts were consulted and offered contributions to a report that is focused on China's state responsibility for breaches of the Genocide Convention, and specifically the definition of genocide under Article 2. And so the report demonstrates very clearly that China is committing genocide in violation of each prohibited act under the definition of genocide. The evidence we examined included first-hand testimonies, Chinese government manuals, planning documents, statements, statistical yearbooks, white papers, reports, satellite imagery, as well as expert analyses of all this data and the like. And a lot of this stuff is really uh, openly available and official uh, leaked documents. Um, And so we we demonstrated that each of the acts, uh, if you want me to quickly uh, uh, recite the uh, definition, uh, genocide is any of the following five acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a protected group as such. 
That includes killing members, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And so the report, I hope the viewers will take a look, and at least at the executive summary, lays out very clearly how each of these acts has been met um, and uh, systematically, uh, as well as how uh, we've demonstrated the intent to destroy the group's existence, evidenced by objective measures like the overall policy, the law, the repeated destructive campaigns, and the selective targeting of leaders of the group. And all of these atrocities must be viewed in their totality, which amounts to an intent to destroy the Uyghurs in whole or in substantial part. And so whatever the government's stated objectives as to whether they're fighting terrorism or extremism, they are undoubtedly carrying out a campaign of destroying an entire group, uh, which has already been entirely terrorized and traumatized and perhaps worse. And I would like to add that this, this report is... Um, is conservative in our approach in the sense of, sorry, not conservative in a political manner, but right, right. in the sense of er erring on the side of caution on our facts. So I would like to say that, you know, there are manuals that say that, that order camp officials and those overseeing the camps to maintain strict secrecy, quote, which are not to be disseminated or open to the public. Um, and so China has a very uh, tight seal on information getting out as well. So I can only say that one can reasonably presume that the situation has only gotten worse as the policies continue to take place uh, and increase. Yeah, no, it's, it's really remarkable. There was an incredible line in this report that when it, it almost is hard to read it when you, when you realize what you're saying. But uh, let me just read this and then I wanna turn to Professor Packer for a second. Uyghurs are suffering serious bodily and mental harm from systematic torture and cruel treatment, including rape, sexual abuse, exploitation, and public humiliation at the hands of the concentration camp um, officials. Uh, and it goes on to say that uh, among the things that are experienced on a regular basis, mock executions, self-criticism, solitary confinement, obviously sexual assault, rape. Uh, we talked about the forced sterilizations uh, just a few seconds ago. Professor Packer, how could this be going on in one of the largest countries in the world uh, with one of the largest economies engaging the Western world and there be so little outcry? Well, that's a very... A profound question because it's actually not like this is new. We've actually been aware of different elements of this for quite some time, and it's really only stepped up uh, certainly since 2017 uh, when the uh, forced internment camps really were ramped up. Uh, arguably, it was quite evident already 2014. Uh, you know, and and really the policy. Um, uh, broadly speaking, of repression of the Uyghurs and so forth, all the antecedents of what we should have seen were were actually visible. And, you know, the obligation under under the uh, Genocide Convention, we should just underline, is not only not to commit genocide, but the principal obligation is to prevent it. Right. Uh, so, that you know, the state, China is supposed to be doing the opposite of what it's doing. It's supposed to be respecting and helping to fulfill full lives and dignity you know, for all the di different peoples in the country and so forth. And it has ostensible policies for that, by the way, you know, ethnic groups. But when you look at this, we're not. Now, why are, Why not? I, I think it's a, a combination of a few things. China is big and powerful, as you just mentioned. 
And that has implications for, you know, in, in integrated supply chains, dependency, there's a lot of dependency. Nobody wants to be on the kind of wrong side of that. Uh, there's a lot of countries that are very vulnerable now, uh, with huge loans, the Belt and Road Initiative and so forth. So, you know, th this is a problem, not a new problem. There, there were similar problems historically with, you know, the Third Reich and so forth, when you have powerful actors. But the second is, I, I dare say there's a lack of, of political leadership of standing up and actually, which is all that we've done here. We have simply applied the convention, which has 152 states parties, right. and we simply looked at it and called it out and named it what it is. That's all we've done. And it really begs the question why others are not doing it. It is remarkable. Now, how heartened are you guys that at the end of the uh, Trump administration, the State Department, Mike Pompeo, made the genocide declaration? And what has been the fallout or lack of fallout from that, that action? Well, uh, uh, if I might just add quickly to that, that, uh, um, you know, we were pushing and, and uh, a number of people believed that this declaration and other cases, in particular the Rohingya genocide, need right. to be named. And that, you know, that's the first thing is recognition. Recognize what's going on. Name it. That's what Churchill, you know, said genocide was the crime without a name. Now we know what it is and we have uh, international standards on it. Uh, so I think it was uh, long coming and uh, overdue. Uh, now, it's certainly good to see that the uh, uh, a number of a couple of parliaments, the Canadian and the Dutch parliaments, adopted right. resolutions recognizing it. And to our understanding, now it seems the Biden administration uh, Mr. Blinken, and we noticed him at the power. Uh, others have reaffirmed. I think. I think uh, the spokesperson uh, said unequivocally the other day that that it's a genocide. And at the United Nations, this was included in an American statement. So finally, the recognition has been made. The real question now is, is really so what? What what happens next? Yeah, uh, recognition without any action means status quo. I think, uh, Yona. When you look at this, um, I think I had. Um, uh, Maura Moynihan on here about it six, eight months ago when we, we were talking about this. And one of the things that's remarkable, you go back through and you look like at, at Rwanda where Hollywood and a lot of American muscle got behind the genocide there and really tried to stop the sort of horrible things that were going on. Why do you think that Hollywood and so many other institutions that normally would be outraged are muted. And, and that includes the news media. You just, you know, I've done some, there's, you know, you do a search, there are some back page stories, but it doesn't seem to get the sort of attention that other prior human rights abuses in the world has gotten. And I, I wonder if you have a theory as to why, particularly the institutions that have the media bullhorn, aren't more outraged? That's a great question. Uh, I can't, you know, I can't speak too much on uh, the pressures facing uh, the media, but I would say that, of course, China is uh, an indomitable economic force uh, on the world stage, not only for corporations, but for countries around the world, which is why uh, you, it's, you, it's countries have been hesitant to call it a genocide, you know, only Canada and the Dutch parliament so far and the U.S. So I would say there is a, a much uh, broader problem, and we're hoping that with our report, we can move this conversation past um, any sort of debate over what is happening. And now we can uh, move to a consensus around the genocide and start discussing ways that all stakeholders can act to end complicity and to prevent and to punish the crime. Yeah, that's the key thing, complicity, right? A silence is complicity when you have something of this magnitude. 
the Olympics are uh, less than a year away, a little over a year away, I guess, the Summer Olympics in, in China. Is there a moment for the United States and other Western countries to make a profound statement and say, clean this up, get right, stop this, or we're not sending our athletes? Do you think there's a pressure point lever there that, that the United States and others should use? I'll, I'll start with you, Professor Packer, and then we'll go back to Yonam. Well, I, I, I think it would be uh, really unconscionable, uh, and, and I noticed uh, that uh, this, this view has been expressed in some of the media uh, certainly here in Canada, uh, General Romeo Dallaire, who was, you know, the famous general who of course. left uh, on his own facing the, the Rwanda genocide. He has said it unequivocally on national news in Canada. I think in the U.S. now, I think the Washington Post came out to say that that they would be unconscionable to do nothing, just to go to the Olympics. I noticed that Mitt Romney today in the New York Times said, well, OK, let's be a little cautious here. Let's not penalize the athletes. But my own view would be, uh, you know, China is not going to care much uh, about the niceties around diplomacy. They have their big show. And as long as they have their big show and control all the media, they will spin it as a great success. So I, I really think proceeding with the Olympics, even under the Olympic Charter, which says about, you know, human rights and so forth. I don't know how you square that. What I think would be a better thing to do would be to relocate the Olympics and, and indeed have the Olympics. Uh, but not in China. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that would be an extraordinary penalty. I mean, not only from a shaming standpoint, but also economically. Yona, what do you think? Do you think there's a will in America and in other Western worlds, uh, other Western countries that have been remarkably silent to maybe step up to the plate and say, we're pulling our athletes from the Olympics? I would hope so. And in my personal capacity, you know, not on, on behalf of our experts on the report, but I would say that relocating the 2022 Olympics is a very obvious starting point that, that we that we all must push for because, you know, one looks back at the 1936 Olympics um, and I wouldn't compare, I don't want to engage in comparisons with Nazi Germany, but that was the seat of the Third Reich and that was the theater of the largest Nazi propaganda operation of all time. And so... Hitler, you know, was very sophisticated in that sense of using that to uh, fool the, the great powers. And in the same way, we cannot promote, uh, you know, while one shouldn't engage in too many parallels, the parallel that both states are committing, were, com uh, were in the process of committing genocide then and committing genocide now, uh, there is no way that we can promote uh, such a state on the world stage in that way. Yeah, that really is the remarkable thing here, because participating essentially is sanctioning the status quo in China. And it, it seems from the extraordinary crimes that you have both written about so eloquently in this report, uh, we can't sanction that. Uh, Professor Packer, you uh, you study law. What this, this is a convention that was passed after the Holocaust, I guess 1948, if I remember. And it's about prevention and punishment. That's what the convention says it is. Uh, what are some of the tools, if more uh, of the world community were to come together, what are some other tools that can be exacted under the convention and who would do the prosecution? Well, uh, first of all, in terms of uh, between states, it, it doesn't give rise to a, a prosecution. One doesn't prosecute a state, but what uh, one would prosecute individuals. And right. that is an important thing to know. Uh, there are individuals that have particular uh, individual responsibility because genocide is also a crime uh, 
uh, under customary international law. And so under universal jurisdiction, any other state could proceed. So if, for example, a camp commander, uh, for example, might find themselves, I don't know, on vacation in Australia or something like that, uh, potentially they could be arrested. But but I want to emphasize the between states, if I may, because this is the powerful thing, because, you know, China might not care about one camp commander or even a senior party leader. Certainly wouldn't. between states just to say that there is an obligation of other states not to be complicit. And they must look at, for example, their trade relations, and they have a legal entitlement to take steps that would even be otherwise unlawful, that would be proportionate and directed at this uh, matter to take states such as suspending a trade agreement. Uh, great, great point. Trade is a powerful weapon. And of course, China needs two things, right? It needs trading partners. It also seems to need capitalization in the Western world. It needs Western capital. Uh, in the second half of the of the Trump administration, there were some efforts to decouple uh, Chinese companies from their investment opportunities. Yona, do you think asking Wall Street either voluntarily or to get the Biden administration, the SEC, in a more formal way uh, to limit or stop access to the markets of anyone that's involved in the genocide? Is that another tool that could be uh, exercised here? Oh, 100%. And I think that's already in motion with the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, uh, right. which bans goods produced in whole or in part, which is important in the region, um, unless it can be shown you know, clearly and convincingly that it was not produced with forced labor, uh, as well as including stronger disclosure requirements to the SEC um, for, for companies uh, with connections to the region. Um, and so, those, in a sense, these laws are, are can be models for the for the world to to follow suit. You know, uh, the U.S. passed the Uyghur Human Rights Protection Act. Uh, they're now considering a refugee law by Ted Deutsch and uh, Mario Diaz Balart that right. uh, would raise the refugee status of um, of Uyghurs. And so, these are all uh, very sensible and practical steps. In addition to um, having already applied targeted sanctions to the key officials and entities involved in the region. So the U.S. has really been leading the way, I would say, um, on taking concrete measures and imposing costs for the genocide. And that is the key. There has to be a penalty or or there's no reason to have these uh, laws and conventions if you're not going to enforce them. When I first came to Washington, uh, the fear about China's human rights record way before the Uyghur crisis started uh, had created a system called most favored nation status that every year, or every couple of years, Congress would have to renew trading rights with China after reviewing and saying they made enough progress. Did we lose? I, I had Newt Gingrich on the show maybe about six, seven months ago. He was one of the leaders in lifting MFN and, and giving China full trading status. And he said, as I look back at my career, that was one of the single biggest mistakes I and others in my generation made. Uh, well, first off, I'd like to get both of your assessment on whether uh, lifting MFN gave, took away a big part of the leverage that America had on China on human rights issues. And two, is there any way to put that toothpaste back in the tube? Can we go backwards in some form uh, to penalize what's going on here? Uh, Professor Packer, let me start with you. Well, well, first of all, uh, I, I do think that uh, in many respects, and we saw this also in the European Union, and uh, which, by the way, is uh, right now negotiating with China and, and seemingly ready to surrender some of the, exactly those human rights standards uh, in favor of trade, that the, that, the, that the trade benefits were too easily given, yeah. that the carrot was surrendered, 
and and the downplaying of these kind of standards uh, really is now coming back uh, visibly. But I, I do think we also have to pay attention, even in the WTO context, those standards are supposed to apply. Right. And, uh, you know, they need to, they simply need to be exercised. I think there's a lot of political will here, starting with, you know, the first point, name it what it is, then follow through on the obligations that countries, uh, other parties to the Genocide Convention have, and for trade. That's not supposed to be a free pass. And I think that's what's been happening. That's a great point. So there are some options, even under WTO, right, the World Trade Organization, to potentially punish China. Is that, do I hear that right, uh, Professor Bagger? If you look at the uh, uh, the fundamental agreements, uh, they also have, I mean, it's not supposed to be that states, uh, you know, in basically bad faith can manipulate their trade arrangements uh, in, in order to breach other international law. So this requires, you know, uh, on in some regard, some careful attention, but it requires a consistency is what I would argue for in approach. Yeah, that's the key, right? Being consistent and and progressive, moving forward, and, and making sure that uh, after you get the declaration, that you move on to the penalty phase. Yona, um, <clears throat> when we look at what <coughs> excuse me, what China's doing in these um, camps with the Uyghurs, uh, what uh, we have to look at, I think, in the larger context of what's going on, right? The repression of Hong Kong, the uh, saber rattling around Taiwan. How does the Uyghur uh, persecution, the genocide, fit into the larger aggression that we're seeing from China, in it, not only in the Pacific, but around the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, uh, there's that old poem that, you know, they, they came for uh, the Jews and I didn't speak up. And there was no one left for me. They came for the communists, you know, et cetera. And so I would say in, in this case, um, the Chinese state is carrying out uh, a genocide against an entire group. And uh, this, uh, this is a forewarning for other minorities in China and um, potentially, um, you know, uh, nearby that, that face similar systematic persecution that will amount to, that could amount to genocide. I think the Uyghurs are facing the most immediate existential threat right now. Um, and so it should be viewed in a class of its own, um, in my opinion, but, um, but also needs to be, um, you know, seen in the broader context of what could, could, could come. I think that is really the big question, right? Which is if this doesn't get punished, what stops China from going after any other <clears throat> minority that would, or uh, a population that they consider threatens itself? I mean, the brutality here is, by the way, so clearly laid out in the report. It really is a chilling report. Folks, if you haven't read this, you you owe it to yourself to read this report. We put a copy of it up on Just the News, and you can download it. It is powerful reading. It's hard reading, but it's powerful. When when we get to the next stage, and I guess we're in that next stage now, um, the United Nations seems to be <clears throat> the vehicle that hasn't gotten the bus entirely going yet. And, and I want to ask uh, both of you, and we'll start with uh, Yon and then go to Professor Backer. What, um, what is the United Nations? Where are they right now and where should they be right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think going back to what John was saying about the strength of our report in focusing on the Genocide Convention, which is a bilateral, I'm sorry, a multilateral agreement, but it applies, you know, between states. And so this is a matter between China and the 151 other states parties to the convention. Um, so where there is slower movement at the UN or international forums, states have a responsibility to act unilaterally, you know, and take and make decisions 
in their dealings with China. Um, and so at the UN right now, there's, there's talk and there's proposals of uh, seeking unfettered, uh, independent access to the region. Although we have to be very careful here because we cannot rely, because organizations have been asking for this for years. And we cannot rely on China's generosity, particularly as it sits on the Security Council, and, and as well as asking for permission to the region, because we risk chaperone visits to show specific show camps, you know, like Hempkin villages. Right. Um, and so, so we have to be very careful about that, uh, about that, about asking for specifically unfettered access, which is, in all, you know, it's, it's, it sounds pretty unlikely to me that that's going to happen. And, and China has reservations to the International Court of Justice and doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court. So in my opinion, um, I think it really falls on states to make decisions in their relations with China. Yeah, uh, there's 152 or one states that signed the convention, so they each have an opportunity to make a difference. Professor Packer, what do you think? Is the UN <clears throat> doing all it can do, or is it just sort of uh, going through the motions right now? Well, the, the UN, uh, first of all, I, I was uh, a staff member at the UN for many years, uh, right. and so I'm quite familiar with kind of its internal workings, and I worked on many serious cases like uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein and, and so forth. Uh, you know, I would say two things. There are different UNs, right? There, there is the UN member states, and then there's the UN in terms of uh, the the staff and the secretary staff, general right? and so forth. Uh, reporting, uh, condemnation, uh, certain kind of mobilization of of uh, common positions. Yes, there's a discussion. Maybe the General Assembly might have a, a, a meeting and and do something. But look, the, I would say here we're we're butting up against the kind of limits of the UN. Uh, not only, as you mentioned, the second largest economy in the world, China is already and, and on its way possibly being the largest, the, the largest uh, population, a P5 member on the Security Council, but, you know, but the, the actual chances of meaningfully, for example, a visit uh, having some kind of effect and changing, I think, are modest. So this right. really leaves us between states. States have to decide not only unilaterally, but multilaterally, do these standards mean anything? And what are they prepared to do? And there's a lot that can be done. Uh, you know, China is still only to some 20, 21 percent or whatever it is of the global economy, you know, and it's totally dependent on things like oil uh, right. and so forth. So I, th I think this really uh, we should not uh, have the expectation that the U.N. will somehow come in as a shining knight. Uh, that's not going to happen. And, and the U.N. Ha has a lot of problems at the moment. So I think we just have to face this reality. Yeah, that is a great point that China's vulnerable. There was a <clears throat> story over the weekend that also reminds us as fast as it's growing, China's own economic minister said that they, they're still 30 years away from being a manufacturing powerhouse because they don't have access to things like enough energy. Uh, you mentioned oil and gas. Um, as we look out in the America being sort of the normal moral voice on these issues, what are the next steps that you would expect the Biden administration? They seem to have picked up the mantle from uh, the Trump administration. There was some doubt among conservatives. Well, maybe Biden won't take this seriously. But it does appear that Secretary of State Blinken is on, on the same course as where the Trump administration left us. What would be the next steps for um, the Biden administration? We'll start with you, Yon, and then finish up with Professor Packer. Well, I think they have an opportunity this week already, um, you know, uh, Blinken and Sullivan are meeting uh, in Alaska with Chinese right. officials, and I hope that they raise 
the genocide specifically and also specific cases uh, that are internationally known, like Ekbar Asad and Dr. Rahida Daoud, who dedicated their lives to building a better China, to building bridges. And yet those are the same ones that are being targeted under this genocidal campaign, meaning that the, all claims of re-education is just complete nonsense. Um, I think, you know, we have to increase quotas for Uyghur refu refugees um, and continue identifying individuals and entities responsible for the genocide for targeted sanctions, uh, as well as, you know, fast tracking and ensuring um, strict enforcement of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act um, and, and efforts to relocate the 2022 Olympics. Those are just yeah. a few and hing hinging any dealings really on closing the camps and ending the atrocities. That's a pretty good list. Uh, Professor Packer, what did we miss? Well, I, I would add a few things. I mean, you, you mentioned rightly that ever since uh, at least the Second World War and the whole kind of post-Second World War world order, America has had a leading position. And really the Charter of the United Nations, the genocide, many of these things, the Universal sure. Declaration of Human Rights, you know, have a very large American uh, imprimatur. And I, I think here, uh, American diplomacy, through all the means and levers uh, to uh, really mobilize the international community to stand on this. Now, one important element would be businesses themselves, the, the whole trade links. We're seeing this also potentially with the uh, Myanmar coup, you know, cutting right. off the benefits. And, and uh, if I may just say a last point, you know, there are right now in Canada and in the U.S. people walking around with what I would call genocide genes, you know, meaning we are wearing cotton-made garments produced from China, we are wearing them on our pants right now. And we have to, all of us, think about their complicity in, in this genocide. Mm. Wow. That makes it very personal. We all have a pair of jeans somewhere. I would just add to that there's a recent report that identified at least 82 global brands that are potentially benef benefiting off of the forced labor, which taints one in five cotton products worldwide. So we see the extent wow. uh, and how it enters our market. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Well, Yona Diamond, John Packer, these are important discussions. First, I want to thank you for the work that you and others put into this report. Uh, it is chilling, but it is essential that we have trusted, factual, neutral information to make these decisions on. And I think your body of work really served the well in the United States uh, so well in, in, in doing that. And uh, we're going to be following this issue. So I'm sure we're going to need you back on the show in the not so distant future to, to keep on this, the front lines of this very horrible genocide in China. Well, thank you Thanks, very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, fellas. Well, we'll be back and talking to you soon, I'm sure. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Report. Some pretty heavy stuff there with Yona Diamond, John Packer, but important stuff, factually driven stuff. If you haven't read their report, read that report. We've embedded it in the story. This is important facts about Chinese conduct against humanity, against a minority population, the sort of persecution, genocide, torture, human rights violations that America has always stood out against. But it has been a lot quieter and more subtle about this issue, probably because of all the money that China has invested in America and around the world. But we can't allow that money to buy our silence. We must speak up. We must speak truth. We must use the facts that are in the public domain now from the experts like Yona and John to make China end these uh, horrific um, violations. That's why we had the show today, so you can learn about it, be armed with it, organize your friends, talk to your members of Congress, talk to the Biden administration. Let's not let this travesty go on much longer. There are lives and human rights at stake. There are people dying, being sterilized, being raped, being tortured right now in uh, these Uyghur concentration camps. We need to speak with a loud, clear moral voice that this will not stand in the world in the 21st century important stuff thanks for listening tomorrow we'll be back i may have a big 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 story about a democratic fundraiser raised a lot of money got convicted for bringing foreign money into the election he may have had a very unexpected other relationship with the government something left out of the court case mostly but you're not going to believe the story of Imad Zuberi and what he might have been doing with U.S. intelligence. We're going to break that story tomorrow. Buckle your seatbelts. It's a classic investigative piece that's going to open your eyes. Documents, interviews, a lot to learn. We're going to break that for you here tomorrow. Until then, may God bless you and may God bless this great country, as he always has, the United States of America. Have a great night. Enjoy your family. Hug your loved ones. Let them know. You're there for them. We'll be back tomorrow with a new edition of John Solomon Reports. And of course, whenever you need that news fix, just go to Just the News. We've got you covered on the breaking news, the accountability news, and we only give you facts. We don't try to make up your mind for you. We'll let you make up your mind with the facts that we try to provide you. All right, God bless. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.